You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Kettle One Botanical. One of my goals for the year is to spend more time with friends who I haven't seen nearly enough of. Preferably, these catch-ups happen over a good drink or two. For these occasions, I like to have our home bar stocked up with Kettle One Botanical. If you haven't tried it yet, it's vodka distilled with real botanicals. It has a pretty fresh taste and makes an excellent base for cocktails. If you're looking for recipe ideas, I highly suggest trying the Botanical Breeze or Lady Kombucha Cooler from Goop.com. The other reason we like Kettle One Botanical is because it's made with non-GMO grain and doesn't contain sugar or artificial sweeteners. They've got three varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. To shop for Kettle One Botanical, head to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today, we have another special episode in our relationship-focused series. Elise is sitting down with Dr. James Doty, a clinical professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University and the director and founder of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. He's the author of Into the Magic Shop and has one of the most incredible personal stories that I've ever heard. When he is not practicing neurosurgery, he works with scientists and world leaders on how to understand the soul of human relationships and their effect on the brain. He gets into all of this today with Elise. What we now know is that as a species, we have great capacity to intuit people's emotional states subconsciously from their facial expressions or their body habitus, even their smells. And I realized that when I changed how I saw the world and released this anger and hostility, it changed how the world reacted to me. Mm. And then that changed everything. Okay, let's cut to Elise and James Doty. So here we are. We just hugged Alma, your best friend, apparently. So I think we should say that Alma hugged us. That's true. Hug Alma pulled us into her bosom and vibrated our entire Beans. beings. Yes. I've never thought of it that way, but okay. Yeah, she's, that was pretty amazing. Okay, so take us back to the beginning, to your childhood, the magic shop, do you mind just sort of explaining who you were when you were a kid? Sure. So I had a challenging childhood. My family was on public assistance. Neither of my parents had gone to college. And my father was an alcoholic. Uh, my mother had had a stroke earlier in my childhood and was partially paralyzed and had a seizure disorder and was chronically depressed. And in fact, attempted suicide multiple times. We were evicted from various uh, homes. And growing up in that childhood, uh, which obviously is not surprising, you have shame, 
you have uh, despair, you have anger. And if you're self-aware and intelligent, it's even more painful because you can look out in the world and sort of see this degree of unfairness and you wonder why you're in that situation. And as a child, it's particularly challenging. And uh, we now know uh, there's something called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And we know that when you have mental illness, drug or alcohol abuse, poverty, violence, that the likelihood of you overcoming those challenges is very, very slim. Uh, But fortunately for me, at the age of 12, I walked into a magic shop. And I'd had an interest in magic, and that's why I ended up there. And this was a a strip mall, actually, that was quite a distance from where I usually rode my bike. And I walked into this magic shop, and the owner wasn't there, but his mother was there. And she was just minding the store while he did an errand. And she was one of these people who just radiates goodness and kindness. And what science tells us now is that one of the most critical things for us to connect with others is a sense of psychological safety. And for me, from my environment, I did not experience that frequently. But with her, I felt safe. And we began a conversation. And at the end of about 15 or 20 minutes, she smiled at me and she said, I'm here for another six weeks. And if you show up every day, I think I could teach you something that could change your life. Mm, It's amazing. So you went to see Ruth every day. And she taught you how to meditate, among other things, how to relax your body, how to meditate, and how to manifest and open your heart, which I think was the most critical part, right? No, that's right. And I knew nothing about her. And to be honest with you, I still don't know what her background is exactly. But she was an individual who, while science may talk about neuroplasticity and meditation and its effect on the brain. Now, back in 1968 when this occurred, these were unheard of concepts. And so what she recognized in me was that I was experiencing essentially the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what happens uh, in children in these environments, because I never knew what was going to happen next. And so I met with her every day, and the first part of what she taught me was how to relax my body because I didn't realize that all my muscles were very tense all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was always looking around because I I couldn't focus, but also because I didn't know what was going to happen next. So over a period of time, she taught me with intention how to very specifically do what we now call a body survey, but to relax my muscles and then to focus because we can't learn, we can't attend unless we have the ability to focus. And so she taught me this looking at a flame or a candle, if you will, and also using a mantra, but ultimately I was able to do that. And from there, once I was able to be present, and you know, being present, authentically being present without being distracted by your cell phone or thinking about what you should have done or might have done or could have done or what's going to happen in the future, being present really then allows you to truly connect with someone. And that's what she taught me. And from there, she made me understand that 
I had literally been creating a prison for myself because, like so many of us, I have a dialogue or had a dialogue going in my head based on my background and my situation that said I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't good enough, uh, and it had limited my worldview, my perspective of who I was or what I could accomplish. And this is, if you do a survey of almost everyone, they have this, and it's it's almost an epidemic in Western society. And so once she made me recognize this, that every time I said I can't or it's not possible, it was like building a prison brick by brick. And as I built it, it would get dark and, and, and small and less and less light got in. And uh, she then taught me that that was a false narrative, that that voice in my head wasn't me at all and it wasn't who I was. It was a collection of negative comments that had stuck with me. And unfortunately, our species, we respond to threat and to fear, and we hold those things because Mm -hmm. they put us at risk. And oftentimes, you then hear those negative comments and they stick to you. And so she taught me how to change that negative dialogue to one of self-acceptance and to one of self-compassion. And from that, it allowed me to recognize that I deserve to be loved Mm. and cared for and nurtured. And I recognized, too, that when I had all these negative feelings about myself, it limited my ability to give love and to connect and be kind to others. Mm. Because if you can't be kind to yourself, it taints your vision to be hypercritical oftentimes of other people and non-accepting and also to be judgmental. And so once she taught me how to change my dialogue and be compassionate with myself, it started to change everything. The other aspect that she taught me was acceptance of my shadow. Mm. You know, many of us try to push our shadow away this negative aspect of ourselves that we're ashamed of, that we feel guilty about. And unfortunately, the more you try to hide it and make it not part of you, uh, the more likely it is to show itself and to hurt you. And uh, she taught me to accept my shadow, and even in the face of my shadow, to understand that even with that, I deserve love and kindness, and I was worth being loved. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very important thing for people to uh, be accepting of themselves, all of themselves. In in the face of everything you don't like about yourself, you still are worthy of love. Mm -hmm. It's the hardest lesson, particularly when we operate from a place of scarcity and a lack of abundance and shame. Exactly. And and the reality is, though, that this idea of lack of abundance and uh, scarcity oftentimes is Mm self-created. So once she made me understand that aspect, it also allowed me, if you will, to open my heart and learn to be less judgmental towards others and more accepting of others. And it, in some ways, was a great liberation. 
And the extraordinary thing was that at the end of this time with her, even though my personal circumstance had not changed when Iota, everything changed. And what I mean by that is that I used to have a great deal of anger towards my parents. And it wasn't in the sense that I didn't think they loved me, but they just weren't there for me. And I recognized that they were struggling with their own demons, Mm -hmm. and they did not have the tool set necessary for them to deal with that. And so I no longer had anger or hostility towards them or towards anything. Uh, My situation was my situation, and that was it. And what we now know is that as a species, we have great capacity to intuit people's emotional states subconsciously from their facial expressions or their body habitus, even their smells. And I realized that when I changed how I saw the world and released this anger and hostility, it changed how the world reacted to me. Mm. And then that changed everything. Yeah. I mean, you've had an incredible life and it's hard to not give the book away. The book is still absolutely worth reading, even if we divulge. But then you went into a period of your life where you were able to essentially make anything you wanted to happen, happen through pure force of will. You applied to college. I mean, someone essentially manifested a college application for you sitting next to you in class. A miracle, miracle after miracle. I know you probably shudder at that word since you're an atheist. But <laughs> but you go to UC Irvine. You convince them even though you have a 2.5 grade point average, that they should interview you and give you a recommendation to med school. I mean, how did you, what did that feel like, you know, this power to know that you could manifest your life? Like, what did that, I mean, I'm sure you still do it with different intent, but. Well, you know, what's extraordinary is that all of us have that power. And the problem for so many of us is that we give that power away to others. Mm. We give it away when we listen to someone who tells us we're not good enough. I mean, I think if all of us look at past experiences, we have people who we love even, who we have this incredible idea to do something and we tell them that and they say, you'll never do that. Mm. It's not possible. And we listen to them. And the fact of the matter is that we are the only ones who give our own immense, extraordinary power away. Mm. And each of us uh, has that power to make things manifest. And when I learned these lessons from Ruth, remember I was 12 years old, and while it had a huge, huge impact and allowed me to accomplish extraordinary things, I wasn't really self-aware enough to understand that it wasn't about me. Mm. And so while I did accomplish extraordinary things on some level, I was doing them more for me to prove that I was good enough. Mm-hmm. And it was only after I had accomplished uh, completing medical school, becoming a neurosurgeon, being a professor at Stanford, being a very successful entrepreneur, that when I lost everything, and I was effectively bankrupt and spent a great deal of time reflecting on my the trajectory of my life to date, did I realize that while I was never horribly selfish, 
I was not focused on what truly gives meaning in life, which is being of service to others. Mm. Because when you remove yourself and you focus on the happiness of others, you focus on being of service to others, then you understand what true happiness is at its greatest depth. It's time for a quick break. One of the perks of working at Goop is getting to try the latest recipes that come out of the test kitchen. Our food editors, Caitlin and Anna, are probably the most well-liked people in our office. You might have heard them on the podcast a little while back talking to GP about her new cookbook, The Clean Plate. They're both great. Primarily, Caitlin and Anna come up with new recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or they're cleaning up some version of a favorite snack. But occasionally, they get into drinks, and that's when you really want to be around the test kitchen for sampling. Caitlin and Anna have gotten pretty prolific with their cocktails using Kettle One Botanical. They did a riff on the classic sea breeze using hibiscus tea, lime juice, and Kettle One Botanical grapefruit and rose. That one might be my favorite. If you want to test it out yourself, check out their recipe on goop.com. And if you're coming to our summit in Goop Health this March in New York City, we'll be serving up Kettle One Botanical there. Depending on the kind of cocktail you're in the mood for, Kettle One Botanical comes in a couple of other flavors. There's also cucumber and mint and peach and orange blossom. You can shop Kettle One Botanical online at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. When it comes to skincare, I am big on exfoliating a lot. I use Goop's Exfoliating Instant Facial every single day, even though the box technically says to do it just two or three times a week. I don't really wear makeup when I'm going to the office during the week, but I always wear moisturizer or face oil. And the other thing I do every single morning is drink Goop Glow. Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. So in other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. I love it. We designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. You've probably heard of most of them, like vitamin C and vitamin E, CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. Altogether, these antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress. Topical skincare is great, but I personally don't think it's enough, which is why I like adding Goop Glow to my routine. The powder comes in cute little single-dose packets. I subscribe to our 30 packs of Goop Glow, so I get my new box every month. And if I'm not drinking it at home, I'll throw a packet in my gym bag on the way to work out, or I'll bring a bunch of Goop Glow in my carry-on when I'm traveling for sure. If you want to try it out yourself, and I highly recommend you do, order one box of Goop Glow today, and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash podcast and use promo code GOOPGLOW at checkout. 
That's goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow to get your second box on us. Let's get back to today's conversation. Let's talk about your PTSD and and money for a minute because you sort of at, at your, theoretically, at your peak of success, you had $75 million of assets, not non-liquid assets. And, and I think you, I don't know if you described it as an empty life, but it seems like maybe your life didn't have quite as much meaning as you would have thought. And then are you okay? It vanished. Right. Uh, and you have to understand that, unfortunately, and especially at my age at the time, and for many people, they look at people who've accumulated wealth and accumulated things, and they think that makes people happy. Mm-hmm. And so here I was, essentially having fulfilled all of my desires, if you will, and I had divorced by this time and was single, and you know I was dating beautiful women, I had a penthouse in San Francisco, I had Porsches, Ferraris, I was flying around in private jets, and I would come home empty. And in fact, I had never been more unhappy in my entire life as when I had what people would say, everything. Mm -hmm. And sadly, we see this among many uh, extraordinarily wealthy people. They have this emptiness inside, and they know that so many people crave to be like them because they have a misunderstanding of what makes you happy. Mm -hmm. And they use that craving of other people to look up to them and who think they've accomplished great things and who uh, look at them as if they're special. And that's what they keep trying to fill themselves with or fill themselves with things like a bigger house, a bigger car. And yet that emptiness remains and they can't understand it. And what I came to understand ultimately uh, after I lost everything was that understanding of being of service. So what I tell people is that when I lost everything is actually when I gained everything. Mm -hmm. So after having lost that significant amount of money in six weeks and Of course, when you're in debt also, which I was, bankers become your best friends. And, you know, I lost my Ferraris and Porsches and my penthouse to fulfill my obligations. And at some point, the only asset I had left was stock in a company that I had been the CEO of. And after this period of reflection, I had made some obligations to charity, but I had no money. So at that point in my life, having this realization, I actually gave every share of stock in that company away to charity to live up to that obligation. And that company ultimately went public for $1.2 billion. Mm. And I ended up being a great philanthropist and uh, set up health clinics all over the world and AIDS, HIV programs and endowed scholarships and chairs at uh, multiple universities. And it was at that time that finally, if you will, the monkey on my back was liberated. Mm -hmm. And then you started C-Care. Correct. So what happened was that 
this idea of what are the drivers to make people good or kind or what prevents them from being that way uh, became of interest to me. And I had left Stanford. And uh, this concept of studying this and, and in fact, uh, on some level, what makes people human. Mm. So I went back to Stanford as a professor of neurosurgery, but I started an entity called the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, or CCARE for short, which is part of the School of Medicine, and with the goal to try to understand these drivers of human behaviors or positive emotional states uh, using the tools of neuroscience and psychology. And interestingly, uh, and as you mentioned, I'm an atheist, uh, in which some people refuse to believe, uh, but uh, I was walking through the Stanford campus and I had this vision of the Dalai Lama and I was not interested in spirituality or frankly the Dalai Lama, although my wife was, and this vision would not leave me. And basically it said to me, you need to connect with the Dalai Lama and invite him to Stanford. And as you mentioned, I uh, had become good at accomplishing things. And I had a meeting uh, with the Dalai Lama and we chatted and the conversation went far longer than uh, it was scheduled for. And he and I immediately connected. And not only did he agree to come to Stanford, but at the end of our dialogue, he spontaneously gave me the largest donation uh, he had ever given to a non-Tibetan cause to support the work that I had started at Stanford. And immediately thereafter, two individuals gave significant sums of money and thus started the center at Stanford. And the Dalai Lama, in fact, did come and talk, and it was quite a profound meeting. And from that, he and I developed a close relationship, and I ultimately became the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation, And actually, this may sound extraordinarily weird, but ultimately, he also made me his personal emissary for a particular project, and he had actually never done that for anyone, ever. So let's talk about your atheism, because it's it's confounding. You've had the most miraculous life in many ways, and you're surrounded by spiritual leaders. They're all your friends. And you like how do you reconcile the two and why are you why is atheism important to you well first of all uh, i try not to put too much mental effort into the manifestation of things uh because i don't even understand them but that being said there are a couple things i know one is that for most people having a structured belief system that gives them hope through faith and belief is important. And it's important because it allows them to be of service and allows them to have a fulfilled life. People do ask me, how is it possible that somebody who professes to be an atheist has relationships, as an example, with the Dalai Lama, or here we are with Amma today, having received hugs, you included, <laughs> uh, and seeing how she interacts with me, or Thich Nhat Hanh, or Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, or Desmond Tutu. What I tell people is that an evolved spiritual leader is not stuck to absolute dogma. 
What an evolved spiritual leader knows is that you can be from any faith, any belief system, but the absolute most important thing is to have an open heart, to care, to be non-judgmental, to accept others, mm-hmm. and give others unconditional love. And if you have that as your fundamental base of how you intersect with people and life, then in fact, you are the manifestation of their religion, whatever that religion is, because every religion at its core has these principles. And so people ask me, why is it that when you meet a spiritual leader, they seem to immediately connect with you? It's not about the dogma. It's about having that as the core part of who you are. Because if all spiritual leaders in a microsecond can see you and see your heart Mm -hmm. and what is or isn't there. And so that's what I tell people. And plus, I don't treat these individuals as special in the sense that I don't believe they're gods. They're just very evolved human beings and they understand what it is to be the highest manifestation of who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. And they give us the gift of seeing a a window of that possibility. Mm. I would imagine too that your atheism gives is serves as sort of a bridge. I mean, you're a man of science, you're a doctor, you're someone who can easily move within this other realm. So it's probably helpful. It might not be your intent, but I would imagine like people feel like you can walk them there or explain both sides. I think you're absolutely right. And because I am not committed to any belief practice, in some ways I can be with any belief practice. So speaking of the science, like what is the science of compassion and altruism? Like what is, how does it affect us? Well, extraordinarily, what we have found and others in this field, and I will tell your listeners that we recently published the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, which Oxford University Press actually published. I was the senior editor. But this is bringing the latest science together in this emerging field. And what we know is that when you practice compassion with intention, and what I mean is that you actually make this a part of your core being— of caring for others, of recognizing that others are suffering, uh, because sometimes we focus on our own suffering and we don't appreciate that others are suffering as much or more than we are. When you practice compassion with intention and look at the world through that lens, many things happen. One is your cardiac function improves. Mm -hmm. You have a decrease in the expression of Uh, chemicals associated with stress. You have a decrease in the production of uh, inflammatory proteins. And it has as much benefit from a health perspective as being at your ideal body weight and exercising, actually. Now, that's Mm -hmm. not a justification for not doing those things. But certainly, it shows you the power of that. Because as a species, to have theory of mind, to have complex language and abstract thinking required that our cortex enlarge, but it also required that our offspring are cared for for 10, 15, 20 years, 37 in my case. And <laughs> But we have to care for our offspring, and our offspring learn by 
mirroring our behavior. And this is where you hear this term mirror neurons. But the other aspect is the resources necessary to care for our offspring are extraordinary. And so what is the driver that motivates us to care? And what happens is that when we care, when we alleviate the suffering of another, our offspring, our kin, our kith, and others around us, amazing physiological things happen. You actually are rewarded through a chemical called oxytocin and others, and your pleasure centers are stimulated, and you feel soothed, you feel happy when you actually care for others. And when we were talking about people who chase after money and view this as something that will make them happy, they don't get that. They may get a short-term bump because they get something new, but it's very quickly, it dissipates. When you actually care for another, this is a deep form of happiness that stays with you and permeates you and actually makes you uh, feel happy. Mm-hmm. And how important is it? That it feels like something, of course, there's, there's altruism and there's writing checks, which is noble and wonderful, giving money. But in terms of the physical benefits, is it better to give time? Like, is it better to look someone in the eyes and, or hug them the way Ama does? Or Well, I don't think there's necessarily one answer for that. I think if you're talking about, as an example, starving children, writing a check to feed them is a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a belief, especially in Silicon Valley, that every action has to be some sort of sustainable action and has to pay for itself. And frankly, there are some things that you just have to give the money. And I don't believe that everything necessarily is one that has to pay for itself. The other aspect of this is mm-hmm. if we look at the disparity between the haves and the have-not, it's enormous. I mean, 50% of the wealth is in the hands of eight people. Mm -hmm. And this is obscene. And so while uh, I think giving time, giving of yourself, making that a personal aspect of who you are is wonderful, there's no question, though, that that amount of wealth and the wealth held by some people, if they give it away, part of it, they can have a profound, profound, profound effect in the world. Mm-hmm. So what's the mission of C-Care, ultimately? One is that we study the neuroscience of compassion and demonstrate the value proposition of those behaviors through rigorous science. And the reason I say that is because when we promote, if you will, acting compassionately, there's a subset of people who look at this as a soft science and mm-hmm. that what does that mean and that's frou-frou. But in fact, through the work that we have done and a number of others have done, we demonstrate on a very, very scientific level that when you practice compassion with intention, it has a profound effect on your mental and physical health and wellness and even your longevity. And not only does it benefit you, but it benefits everyone around you. Mm, That's amazing. And obviously, we need more more Ruths in the world, right? Well, this is what people forget is that sometimes just saying hello to an individual, sometimes just hugging an individual can have a profound, profound effect that you don't even realize. So I say to my children and others, every one of us every day has the capacity to change another's life in a positive way. 
Thanks for joining Elise's interview with James Doty. For more on his fascinating life, check out his book, Into the Magic Shop, and his audio series, Lessons from the Magic Shop. Thanks again for joining us on the Goop Podcast. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode. And you can catch us again next week on Tuesday and Thursday. In the meantime, if you have a chance, please rate, review, and share with a friend. Hit subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're looking for more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast.